A few weeks ago, after I tweeted about Brett Favre and the whole Mississippi welfare scandal, a writer for Outkick the Coverage named Joe Kinsey wrote a piece that was headlined, Woke Snowflake Author Jeff Perlman, Don't Buy My Brett Favre Book, He's a Bad Guy. And the article is about what you'd think, including the phrase, quote, and because Perlman is a huge snowflake, blah, 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 blah. And here's what's funny. I saw the story and I read the story. And then I reached out to Joe Kinsey via Twitter DM because we both have open messages. And I wrote, admittedly, headline woke snowflake author was pretty funny. And I have no beef with you or anyone having a take. But curious, writer to writer, my DMs are open. Why not reach out, ask why I tweeted it, or find out if I had a comment? Anything. Not mad. Obviously, 100% you're right to write what you want. But it seems a little strange. And Joe Kinsey replied with literally nothing. He didn't respond at all. And I just find it so fucking pathetic. Like, I'm the snowflake. But you were too big of a coward to reach out? That's not journalism, man. That's not even responsible media. It's just soft. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang. The podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Jamel Hill, the former ESPN columnist and host of multiple TV shows and the current writer for The Atlantic. And Jamel has a new memoir coming out on October 25th titled Uphill. A quick note, this episode was recorded live in Orange, California, shortly before Jamel was kind enough to speak to my class at Chapman University. This is episode number 279. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Jamel. First of all, thank you for being here. I just want to say, we've met in person now three times. Can you name the three times? Okay, once I spoke at your class previously, Okay. right? Um, wait, are you counting the winning time? Yes. Premiere, okay, that was it twice. And I'm trying to think of the first time. No, the third time. It was like a month ago. Oh, what? The, at the Tupac oh, Museum. Oh, the Tupac Museum, yeah. right. <laughs> of all the places. At least they all are very interesting and distinct. Totally, right? right? It's like, uh, you know, a show premiere yeah. that you wrote, yeah. the Tupac Museum, and your class. Like, that's great. That's pretty good. Yeah. Now, here we are, number four. I feel like I've known you for a long time. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I mean, because we worked, I was writing columns for ESPN when you were writing columns for ESPN. And I'm kind of curious, like, before you get into everything, all right. We were both columnists at, it was called Page Two, right? It was Page Two. Page okay. Two. Does that feel to you like a quaint, almost like young sports fans nowadays wouldn't get the idea of Jamel Hill was hired to write a column, I don't know, was it twice a week or three times a week? Twice a week. Twice a week yeah. at the website, and people are going to go to the homepage of the website, then click to the link. And then click on this column, read that column, and respond perhaps via email or a comment on the bottom of the column. Yeah. Does that feel like a million years ago, or am I am I misreading that? No, it definitely feels like a million years ago. I think the the most unbelievable part of that for people is that I wasn't hired at ESPN at first to be a television person. A lot of people assume that's what it was. The TV part of my career at ESPN was a slow burn, and it was something I frankly rejected at the beginning. And, you know, once you see the money possibilities, that kind of changes your mind. At least it did for me. I can't speak for everybody. Some people are born and love to do television, but I was never that way. But no, here's the crazy part about Page Two. It was so ahead of his time. Page Two would work exceptionally well now. Why do you say that? Okay. If you think about 
the especially with the explosion of social media a huge chunk of the stories about sports i mean beyond just oh this exciting play or that exciting play a huge chunk of those stories have to do with sports culture have to do with the convergence of you know or the intersection of race politics gender with sports a huge percentage of what's being written what goes viral is covering those bases like if page two existed imagine how Colin Kaepernick would be written about on page two right because we were all writing about race and gender and politics we were all writing about that stuff then and this is back in the mid-2000s right I know page two started before I got there but when I got there in 06 everybody was writing about stuff like that so now it's just so common and you see entire websites and entire um you know blogs being built off frankly talking about the more cultural side of sports so it was way ahead of its time the interesting thing is you could write about race politics anything i was gonna say nobody gave a shit that's not actually true but no, there's no controversy to it like it was just Mm-mm. oh he's just writing about this or she's just right like nobody you know what i mean like yeah yeah there was no oh espn is too liberal oh they're being you know right wing or left wing or this like people were not going to label you it was just think about some of the columns Ralph Wiley wrote for page two. Yeah. Those columns, I mean, they were fire then, but now, like, they would resonate even harder. Okay, so that's why I say that was the, the material that we were putting out then was exactly what people are looking for now. It's just the reaction to it is different. And that, you know, people are, are not only much more likely to label you, but they're much more likely to hate you. And it makes it thorny and dicey for people like ESPN to even want to approach those subjects when you know a column or a segment is going to wind up giving Fox an entire 24 hours of programming and they don't they don't want to be banged on and so I think that's a big reason why they pull back from doing that kind of stuff uh, but now like I, I think you know if somebody started a version of page two it would work are we doing it I mean I don't have the time but I feel like <laughs> you could do this yeah, don't you don't either no I don't have the time either um, wait it's really interesting do you think ultimately like the the reason that these big uh, outfits like uh, like ESPN are afraid what it like in a way what it comes down to is they're afraid of being ratioed on Twitter like is that actually like base level what we're talking about they're afraid of the mob coming for them they're afraid of and not just social media but they're afraid of like the Breitbart's and the Fox Newses and the Daily Wires and the Ben Shapiro's and like they don't want to be their topic of discussion all the time. I think the other part of it too, and it, it, this is why it was always funny to me that ESPN was accused of being so liberal, is that most media cultures, when you get to a certain level within that newsroom, the higher up you go, the more conservative it gets. Yeah. It's These places are wildly conservative. And the other part, you know, is like they have shareholders to worry about. You know, Disney has a huge stake in ESPN. And Disney wants to be like, Disney is not in this to be disliked. They're not in this to be talked about as being um, being a part of some cultural world. They don't want anything to do with that. And I think most middle of the road networks do not, they don't want that smoke. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. You weren't aware of that when you started this off. Like, were you actually, were you consciously aware I'm working for a company and this company is not actually gonna, they may want, okay, controversy, who should start a quarterback for the Browns, fine. Controversy, uh, this president is bad for blah, 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 blah. No, like, did you have any awareness of that when you sort of leapt to ESPN or leapt into television specifically? No, because I I didn't really, the news is the news. And even though you know that 
ESPN has a deal, billions of dollars, a billion dollar deal rather with, with the NFL. And they have a billion dollar deal with the NBA and that they have invested a huge chunk of money into these broadcast rights. You don't look at it as, I can't say this because of these associations. However, there's a part of you without them telling you, goes with the old adage, what's understood need not be said. Like, you know, you can only take conversations so far. Um, you know, they don't want you personally calling people names uh, that are commissioners of leagues. And I, I, I certainly had a few uh, occasions that I write about in the book about the, you know, me saying some things about some people and then <laughs> suddenly it becoming a political nightmare behind the scenes. But no, I, I wasn't very conscious of that when I went there. And I certainly didn't like, didn't want it to influence my opinion on television and certainly not what I wrote but when you see the fallout from certain things you know, it's kind of like if you keep touching the stove and while it's hot and you keep getting burned at some point it's going to click in your mind like well maybe I have to tread more carefully when I talk about this because I know the reaction the chain reaction it will cause and I'm not even talking about reader reaction you know I mean I, one of the incidents I, I write about in this memoir was how I got a severe talking to because of a innocuous tweet that I had about Humira, the the psoriasis drug that nobody on Twitter reacted to. I mean, people laughed, and that was it. But it becomes some big thing. But I did not realize that Humira was what had ads on ESPN. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. um, because and the only reason, and I had this tweet, much like with any drug commercial. You ever listen to the side effects? They say yeah, they're the best. <laughs> It's like horrible. Yeah. It's like <laughs> it's how my kids learned about erectile dysfunction. It's a great, it's, it's so wonderful. Yeah. And then they were like, "You could have a heart attack, a stroke." This and you're like, "All this sounds awful. It does not sound like it's worth exposing yourself to take this drug." And so I noticed that everything about Humira, the side, the potential side effects were horrible. And I made a comment about it, and they were really upset at ESPN. And so um, it's stuff like that, the inner workings of corporate, uh, corporate culture that don't wind up as some fancy headline when you realize like, okay, I have to be kind of aware about who they're doing business with and I don't want to be. Or it really takes the business community out of it, period, any criticism because um, they may someday want to be an advertiser. Yeah. You know, I heard about an ESPN personality that got in trouble for a Chipotle tweet because <laughs> they, they were pissed that Chipotle like, I messed up their order and it was crappy and they went on a Twitter rant about it and that tweet came down. They got a real talking to. Two things. Number one, we're sitting in Orange, California mm -hmm. and Chipotle just opened. I was going to take you there after this but now I don't know. Number two, um, true story. My career started at the National Tennessean. I was a music writer. I was asked to write a review about the upcoming concert venue summer lineup. I took a big shit all over the lineup. The PR person for the venue calls the Tennessee and Tennessee is a major advertiser. Mm -hmm. I get called into the office of the editor, beaten down. I have to write an apology article and I'm demoted to the cop's beat. So I learned this lesson in the Lord's year of 1995 when all that happened to me. You never got that. You worked at three newspapers before you got to ESPN. You never, did you never get the corporate sort of advertiser uh, we're concerned kind of thing? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they would... I, I never got it that bad. I was like, my goodness, you got to moan wow. over there, yeah. uh, over that. That is, but again, this 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 is why when people say the media is liberal, I just laugh. I was like, you guys have no idea some of the decisions that are made behind closed doors to uphold capitalistic and, and conservative culture. It happens all the time. I mean, I remember um, there were certain articles 
for example, that might be critical, it might include some criticism of like a brand or even an artist because that was related to some concert or whatever, that we, <laughs> this happened in college, we would not run that on the same page that the ad was running. We'd run it on like right. a different page, so you, you know, you just kind of mess around with it there. But now I remember being called in the office about, um, I guess another story I tell about the, my use of the word baby mama. But it got me written up and reprimanded <laughs> because of, of that term. How did you use it? Do you remember what you said? Yeah, I, I, I was. It was a part of a question that I asked Willis McGahee. I was doing a Q and A with him. I had this series called um, "Writing With" that I did in Orlando, and it was very simple. It was just me getting into the car with an athlete and asking them questions about their life and just figuring out who they are. Very wide ranging. That was it. And I knew <laughs> Willis had a couple kids um, by different women. And so I jokingly said to him, I was like, hey Willis, what do you think is worth? Uh, what do you think would be worse, having an ex-wife or a baby mama? And he, he was like, oh, a baby mama. And then he goes into this whole monologue about how baby mamas are the worst and they expect so much from you and da 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 and they nag you. Like, he is going in. It's actually kind of funny, right? <laughs> I mean, but he, it's funny because he, it's unintentionally funny. So he has this answer. Uh, you know, back when Deadspin was, you know, they would yeah. pick up on, you know, you know the different Deadspin that it was then. They picked up on his comment. They pick it up, pick up the story. It goes totally viral for what was viral for 2005, I think this was. My mom put it on her Facebook page. That was, that was viral. <laughs> exactly. It's like, for whatever passed is viral then, because, right. like, you know, the traffic for this story just exploded because of Deadspin and then other little blogs picked it up and it became like a whole thing. Willis McGay hates his baby mamas. That was like pretty much most of the headlines. So I'm thinking this is actually great because right. traffic to the uh, story, traffic obviously to the Orlando Sentinel's website, good. And But the executive editor of the paper did not think this was funny. And she was, she, she was a much older woman who, didn't, who had not heard of the term baby mama. And she thought it was- She was white. She was white. Okay. And, and so she was, insulted by the idea of it and thought it was inappropriate language for a newspaper and i i just was flabbergasted i was like this is a this term is used all the time they have songs you know named after this i mean by that time i don't think the movie with tina fey and amy poehler had come out called baby mama yeah. but yeah i mean i tried to explain to her that this is a widespread pop culture term didn't care so she put something in my file. My editor who edited it, I think he might have he might have been suspended for a day. It was like crazy. And, you know, she pretty much was on this. If this happens again, you know, when they start putting stuff in your file, it's like they're basically telling you the next time that you step over some line that they have in mind that, you know, they could potentially terminate you. I just want to say when I was when I was at Sports Illustrated, I did a story about a net outfielder named Derek Bell and he lived on a houseboat in New York. And I wrote a story, I filed it, and I get a call from the reporter, and she goes, uh, I have to ask you a question, I'm really embarrassed, but the editor ha told me I have to ask you, is the music hip-hip music or hip-hop music? That's a true, that's a true. <laughs> Not hip-hip or hip-hop, oh my goodness. So I'm actually, is it hip-hip or hip-hop? I don't know. Is it's like hip-hip or hip-hop. The hippity-hop. Yeah. I was at the Tupac Museum trying to figure out the answer. <laughs> like, is this hip-hip or hip-hop? I feel like Tupac would be hip-hip. Yeah, he'd be hip. <laughs> um, okay, you have a memoir out, Uphill. Um, I always think about memoir writing that the terrifying thing is people are going to be angry. And like, 
it's a personal book about your life. Coworkers are going to be angry. I'm sure your mom read part of it and was like, has your mom read the book? My mother has read the book. And you're not... I mean, you're nice to your mom, but there are parts where I'm like, oh, her mom liked Trump? What? You know, like, what? Um, when you decide to write a memoir, um, number one, like, why do you do it? And how nervous are you about sort of overstepping some lines? The guides to honest truth about why this memoir journey started was because of money. It had nothing to do with any deep, intense personal desire to write about myself. In fact, this is the book I didn't want to do. I wanted to write fiction. Fiction was my main, you know, sort of uh, thing I was drawn to. That was what I dreamt about when I was a, a kid coming up as a young writer. It's like, I want to be a fiction writer. But the truth, is the, the truth of the matter is like after the Trump stuff and, you know, my public profile being raised, there was a significant amount of interest in me writing a memoir. And the book went to auction, which means, yeah. you know, people bid for their services and writing the book. And my literary agent was just like, you can't turn this opportunity down. Like, you can, but this would be foolish. And he was right. I mean, David Larabelle, that's his name. David was I know right. David. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was right. He was like, this is the time for you to do this. And you want to be the one to do it because that means you could tell your story, your way. It's your narrative. You can shape it. And I was like... You're probably right about this. This is this is probably the optimal circumstances for me to uh, write a memoir, not just because of the money, but just because of, you know, not being away. From, by that time, I'd left ESPN um, and had some distance there. And, you know, just other things were just happening in my life. So that's why I did it. And you're right. Like, I, I mean, I, I wrote this book like I tried to approach journalism as authentically as you know, with as much transparency as possible. And that would, of course, mean that some people were going to not be very happy with what was in it. And I just had to live with it. Now, my mother, she read the book. She was not happy. <laughs> what was her? No, I'm actually interested. What was your mom? Because I'm, I have a memoir deal based on my early years in Nashville. It's my mm. next book. And I know my mom is going to hate every moment of it. So, like... <laughs> How did you, like, did you just hand it to her or, or send her a copy and say, enjoy? Or, like, and what was her reaction? I sent her an advance with your copy. How long ago was this? Uh, this was months ago. Okay. Like, this was, I feel like, maybe beginning of the summer. Okay. And, but I, I wanted to send it to her enough time so that if there was something factually wrong, keyword factually, it could be changed. And I didn't know what her reaction was going to be to, be, uh, to it and, and realize as I was writing the memoir and she knew I was writing the memoir, I interviewed her for the book because m multiple times, just because she's become like the family historian. And when I told stories about, especially about some of the challenges we faced as I was growing up, I wanted to be accurate, you know, and I talk about, you know, my mother, um, you know, being raped in Texas. I never asked her that I knew it happened, but I never asked her the details. What? Now, why your whole life did you never ask her about that? Just the pain of it or? Yeah, because she struggled for such a long time to um, come to some kind of peace about it, you know. Um, and I still don't think, I don't think she'll, you don't get over that. Like, so getting over is not what I mean, but like, I just think a part of it because of that, it, it, a part of her will always be broken because of that. And she, I mean, she was able to, um, you know, kind of, some personal growth had to happen for her to just get to a, 
a certain piece about it. So, and I waited to the end to ask her about that. Like, I, I wanted to save all the worst parts of her life to ask her late, like the old like, journalism. Yeah, trip. like ask her the other yeah. stuff first. But like. I always loved your apple pie, mom. <laughs> Thanks. You were really great coming to my third grade play, Roy. <laughs> Thank you. Let's, let's get all that out of the way. Like, tell me again about the night I was born. Right. Yeah, go there. And so I wanted to get to save all the more traumatic things. And, you know, I think one of the other uh, parts of it is that, and she knew this, she knew this going in. And you're right, it is different when they read it on the page versus you telling oh, yeah. them. I, I, You know, I told her, I was like, hey, like this, a lot of the stuff is gonna be in there. And she was like, you know, this is just, she was like, this is your story. You tell it how you, you know, how you feel and see fit. The part she disliked the most, it wasn't about her drug use. It wasn't about some of the other questionable choices she made. She had. She didn't care about that Because I mean We've been through that Just many times Just throughout our relationship And discussing that The part she cared about Was the politics That was the part that like We had a blowout fight about 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 You had the fight about politics Or about you writing about the politics About me writing about it Because You know There Like Me mentioning her and Trump She was not happy with And Because I, I mean I personally thought that You know That would be kind of not just ironic, but like given. It's a little weird. It's, right. a little weird. <laughs> I, think I, I mean, like there are 27 African American women in America who like Trump, and one happens to be your mother. It's a little, it's a little strange. I don't know how she feels about him now. I have not asked her since the 2016 election, frankly, right. and so because uh, I felt like it was best for our relationship not to. Um, but at any rate, you know, like the part, the political part, she was very uncomfortable with. One, she didn't want to be labeled as a Trump supporter, because she doesn't consider herself a Trump supporter. Right. The other thing is she, you know, didn't want the um, the name calling and some of, you know how our political climate is now. She didn't want to face that, especially since after I had my comments about Trump, in her circles, people were saying stuff to her about it, like, uh, like negative stuff about me to my own mama. And so yeah. she's like, if they would say that about you to me, what are they gonna say to me, you know, here? Or, um, so she just, it was just dealing with the backlash. That was the part she didn't want to deal with. And she felt like it was, you know, her own personal business. And I'm like, well, I tell a lot of your personal business in here. I don't know why it should be limited to that. But yes, we had a very big fight about it. Does she, um, does she have a fair point? Like her argument, why, whose business is this? Why does this have to go in your book, My Politics? Like, is that a... Is that a relatively fair argument for her to make? Well, I, I wouldn't, as you know from reading it, it's like, I don't just say that and talk about how she was one of the people attracted to Trump. I don't just say that in a vacuum. Like, it doesn't come out of left field in the sense, like, it's it's very much attached to the story itself. Like, it's part of the narrative. So it, it's nothing that I'm putting in there for a salacious reason, which is, even in telling other parts of my life or parts of her life, I try to keep that in mind. It's like, I'm not putting anything in here to be gratuitous. It's because I'm telling a certain story. And the truth of the matter is that during a time where I was, you know, in a political firestorm because of what I said, I didn't feel like my mother was initially supportive. That's part of my story. All right. And so, I mean, I, she was supportive in the sense like she didn't want anything to happen to me, but she, it was more or less the why did you have to say that and you know you should respect the office of the president i'm like he don't even respect the office of the president that is my comeback to her so it was just sort of hearing that in addition to you know her saying other supportive things and it's like kind of in that moment where i'm going 
through this firestorm and my face is plastered all over these different news channels. Like, I don't I don't need to be lectured about what I can say about the president. It was was my position. And so I wanted to write to that. And so it's a part of the story that I'm generally trying to tell. I do find it interesting how the people in our lives become the characters in our lives. And they didn't really sign up for it. Like my mom just wanted to have a kid, you know, like she didn't, she didn't know I'd be taught writing about how cheap she is for the next 50 years, you know, like it is kind of interesting though. Like they didn't, like your mom just wanted to have a kid, you know, I'm sure she was happy to have a daughter. Maybe she'll go on to be a shoe salesman or a lawyer or whatever. And like, nope, you're just revealing all the family secrets in a book. Well, that, that is the, the part about if you manage to become you know, a, a writer or anybody that just minds up being in the public space because even when we both got into journalism, we didn't do it with the idea like, oh, one day we're going to be famous, right. right? It was, I just want to write the truth and I want to cover interesting people and, and subjects and write about them and then that's it. That was that was the beginning, middle, and end of what I wanted to do. It just so happened that I wound up being on ESPN one day and I wound up being a sports center anchor and having a very high public profile and that does drag the people around you into a public space whether they like it or not i mean when me and my husband first started dating i didn't post him for a long time on social media and a big reason i didn't and even when i did post him eventually i didn't tag him on it because you know i was i had that same thinking like you didn't sign up to get to be my collateral damage because i know the types of things that people say to me and write to me and how they come at me if any of them come at you the same way, I'm going to wind up losing my job, right? And so just to and just to protect him as, as well. And so uh, unfortunately, that is now what you sign up for by, you know, being my friend. And obviously you signed up for this being my husband. And, and I, I think this will be a really, how this book is received will be um, something that my mother and I will be learning on the fly. Like we're, we're going to have interviews together. We've never been interviewed together. And so I don't know what now having a raised public profile, how my mother's going to handle that. Does she have a choice to be like, nah, I don't really want to do that. I'm just going to. Yeah, absolutely. I told her you can you don't have to do any media. You can do as much or as little or none. It, it is not a requirement to do this. But the only other thing I said to her, but I do think that it is an opportunity because my mother has been through a lot and it's an opportunity for her. I think to give a very resilient testimony. And, you know, I told her, I mean, not to be shallow, there's some stuff that we might be asked to do that you might find pretty cool. Right. <laughs> so right. there's that part of it too. Right. Yeah. She might end up on a uh, mediocre podcast in the middle of Orange, California. Yeah. You never know. That could happen. That could dreams come true. Dream the impossible <laughs> yeah, dream, <exactly>. everybody. <laughs> um, wait, so uh, I feel like there's a moment in your career, obviously there's a moment in your career like my moment in my career was John Rocker, right? Well, a moment where everything kind of shifts, right? And you're like, oh, I'll, okay. Uh, everything just shifted in a weird way. You have this moment you write about in the book. I'm going to read a little bit here. You said, um, in a series of 12 tweets, I unloaded on Donald Trump, explaining why he was a threat to our democracy and a racist. But the tweet that grabbed everyone's attention was, Donald Trump is a white supremacist who has largely surrounded himself with other white supremacists. I added that Trump is, quote, unqualified and unfit to be president. He's not a leader. And if he were not white, he never would have been elected. I wasn't scared of any negative reaction to what I'd written. If I was truly fearful, I would have deleted those tweets or never have tweeted them at all. I was aware of ESPN's social media policy that forbids employees from personally attacking political candidates. But the company policy never entered my mind. As far as I was concerned, what I tweeted about Trump was indisputable. And everything just goes like everything in your 
career, in public perception, just goes bam. And um, I'm actually wondering, like, that was 2017, right? 2017. Putting yourself back in it, were you prepared, like, emotionally for the shitstorm that followed? Not at all. Because no. <laughs> no. you, you, I'm sure you went through this with John Rockers. Like, nothing prepares you for what's to come. Uh, in your mind, you might have some idea because, you know, the, the good thing, I guess, with both being in media, that we can kind of predict media behavior, media reaction to some degree. But this was far beyond what I thought would happen. I, I thought, sure, Fox News will have their fun. It'll be... You know, it'll be... Uh, when you wrote it, you didn't think anything, right? I didn't, didn't think anything. Okay. Yeah, when I first wrote it, I thought nobody would react. I right. mean, honestly, I was just like, I didn't think I didn't think I was saying anything that was crazy. And I think I may have even characterized it also this way in the book. It's probably the most unoriginal thing I've ever written. Like, I, like there's no... I wasn't even the first person to say it. So I'm just, I, I just was very surprised when it started to pick up a reaction. Um, what I never could have anticipated is it becoming a topic at the White House press briefing. That's the part where I was like, okay, what has just happened here? You know, again, it's one thing if, if media people want to debate, if you're working for a media company, what what should uh, journalists or media personalities be allowed to say in the political space? Like, is it nothing? Is it something? Like, everybody has opinions on that. That was totally expected. But the moment the press secretary says what I said was fireable, the moment Donald Trump tweets about me, then we go into a totally bizarro world and that was what made me um i guess more of a household name and suddenly you know you have celebrities like with a hashtag for me i was like oh my god this is insane so i was just uh, really unprepared for how much it would how much it would balloon my public uh, profile because it was it was by a lot and it and it happened within a matter of like three or four days. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who wants to tell you about... Dad, it's me, Emmett. Casey left for college. This this is Jeff Perlman with my, my daughter, Casey, and... Dad, seriously, Casey's gone. But I'm here, and I wear Royal Retros gear, too. Look, I'm wearing the Arizona Wranglers jersey you bought me. Number 11, Greg Landry. Let's play catch, Dad. No, you're Casey. Casey Perlman. You do these ads every week. Right, Casey? Every week. These ads. Casey, so happy. Daddy-daughter day. Casey who? Mom, can you call CVS and see if Dad's meds are in? All right, so I know a lot of people who say, like, in our field, who are like, well, I don't, I don't read my mentions. And I'm like, eh. I kind of do. I'm not gonna, I, I actually do. Um, it's kind of hard not to. So like, this is all going on. You're some people are, a lot of people are celebrating you and, and supporting you. And a lot of people are taking big shits all over you. Like, are you reading? Are you paying attention? Are you, are you tempted to fire back? <laughs> uh, I couldn't fire back because ESPM basically for, forbade me from doing that. Uh, Cause you know, when they go, when they have a crisis, their default strategy is to make sure that it goes away. If you keep, if you respond, they feel like that is keeping the story going. That is, they do not want that. They're just like zero dark thirty radio silence. And if you are to tweet, tweet about nothing that has to do with this. But it, the funny thing is about your question, my Twitter mentions were going so berserk, I couldn't open the app on my phone. Wow, really? It, it crashed every time I did it because it would be up. I was getting too many mentions, and so. 
it was that way for the first day and a half. And then I was able to look through some of it. It was just the volume. It was too many. I mean, between Facebook, I, I looked at some, like I looked at a sample size. Yeah. Okay. Facebook, it was just out of control. My voicemail at ESPN was blowing up. People were blowing up the switchboard at ESPN, trying to get to me calling, you know, random executives there, you know, trying to have their say, sending me snail mail. I got like an enormous pile of snail mail at ESPN. Wow. And Wait, that had to be all conservatives. Oh, you know what? <laughs> like, you, you're right. I mean, come on. You know. It's like uh, there was, and in fact, it, it I'm was. I'm canceling my subscription to ESPN, the magazine. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, that. The, the worst things that were said to me were probably in the snail mail. Yeah. Like, by far. Right. Or, um, so... So yeah, like all of this, yeah, I got a I got a temperature on some of the reaction, particularly. It didn't make it easier that there was a hashtag. <laughs> like, right. That made it a little bit easier, and it was it was really pretty overwhelming because there was a lot of support. As I mentioned, there was a lot of celebrity support, and you know, just a lot of people in general like to. to you never think of yourself becoming a really an international news story. <laughs> like you just don't think of it. I mean, there were media requests were just like out of control like it it was just really crazy for i mean it lasted a long time because at first there was the first wave after the initial tweets that i had and then the second wave after i got suspended right so it was like two monster waves that like you know really were pretty overwhelming to take in well i'm actually interested in this like um i hate getting like ratioed i hate when that happens i i did a uh, i wrote a tweet this was not the best like seven years ago there was a, I was at the gym. You should never tweet while you're on an elliptical machine. And it was Geraldo Rivera sitting on a couch next to four Fox women anchors, two on one side. And they're all dressed in like the shortest skirts imaginable, Fox News. And I wrote, why does Fox News always make their women or their female employees dress like hookers? And that did not go over well. That was not a good tweet to write. And I got destroyed, right? And I just like, more than anything, it made me feel like, like just going away like just I just I don't want to deal with this shit I don't want to deal with this shit like so how do you how do you deal with the shitstorm of social media uh, well see in this case it was different because you know there was for every three people who were ripping on me it might have been seven or eight that were right. in full support right so I felt like my my ratio was pretty good right. you know it was more going in my favor um, but yeah there's definitely tweets that I've had it was a tweet. I had a pretty awful one too. That was, was it about a, hookers and Fox News? It was not. No, no. no, it was not. It was about Manny Ramirez, and um, this was when he was busted for taking the female fertility drug. And somebody, I won't repeat what they said, but it was from Facebook that I got it. Yeah. And then I said, I cannot believe I just saw this on Facebook. But I was laughing because I was just at the time I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah. And somebody went back and dug that up, and um, I don't know this tweet. I think it's 10 years old but it's got to be pretty close right and so even just 10 years ago sensibilities uh were much different then and so they brought it back to the surface and i was like well i actually appreciate you bringing this back i was like because now that i've been much more educated about this issue it wasn't about fertility it's about it was, it was the, the genesis of the joke was about being transgender by the way and so i was just like no i'm actually glad you brought this up because you know one thing i always want to do is never forsake my ability to learn or apologize and you know I was like yeah like at that point um, that word was used very commonly right. and 
So it was not a violation of any kind of standards or ethics at ESPN. It certainly wasn't um, within our wider society. Like people said it all the time. And uh, that's not to make it an excuse, but I was like, that's the climate of which that was. But I was like, but since then, here's all the work and all the times where I have been very on record with being protective and an ally of the transgender community. And that isn't like, I don't, I don't want any super credit for like, you know, it's sort of the, I got a black friend and I, like, I'm not, that's not what I'm doing here. But I didn't, because I didn't treat it like it was something that I was ashamed of. I think that's why the response to it wasn't really anything. And so I just have learned and just, even when people are trying to be like slimy by digging up old tweets, uh, one, they're not gonna find a lot with me because when I got to Twitter, I was fully employed, had a job and fully grown and a job I wanted to keep. Yeah. So it's like, my, my, I've never, I, I'm not gonna have, have those wild tweets I might've made as a 14 year old. Cause I didn't, right, 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 <laughs> yeah, right, like, yeah, that doesn't exist in, 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 my, um, in my social media history. So at any rate, I say all that to say is that, um, uh, though I did have, I'm not gonna lie, I did have my publicist go back and, and, and read all my tweets from just so, Oh my God, how long did that take? Well, apparently there's a program that you can do. Really? Yeah, so, but this is what you have to do is that you have to type, you have to, they do it by a search word. And so you just oh. make sure certain words and terms aren't in your tweets. Right. Right. And so again, because of the platform I was already on when I joined Twitter, I was already at ESPN. I know there are certain words I have never used on Twitter. Sure. Right. So, but there were others that, again, just because we changed, language changed, that I was like, okay, check for this word, check for this word. Because we used to, you know, and that's hard to do, but nevertheless, it was, it was done and it took about three or four days. I just think one of the lessons every young person entering this profession needs to know is nothing goes away anymore. Yeah. Nothing goes away. Honestly, my advice to young people, especially if you've been on social media like your whole life, like say from middle school on or high school on or whatever, I would just delete the page. You're not that famous. Okay. Yeah. So just delete that page of whatever existed then and just start anew once you become a professional. That's good. I always tell my students, and it goes against you and I, our careers, but I always tell my students, don't treat politics at this age. Just don't. Because you don't know who your boss is going to be when you're looking for a job. It's just not, unless you're going, literally going into politics as a career. Do you disagree? I just don't think it's worth it at this age to tweet politics. That doesn't mean don't have an opinion. It doesn't even mean don't express it. I just think on Twitter where you can be tracked for years. I don't know. Okay, do you think it depends? Should it be subject dependent? So, because like, sure. what, okay, so what about, just as an example, because um, unfortunately this isn't the bucket of politics, but if you're a young college age woman and you see what's happening with abortion in this country, if you tweet about that. All right, this is a great conversation. Yeah, I think, yes, I think you should, but I think if you're going to be applying for jobs in Toledo or Tulsa or like, I just think you have to be aware. I think you need to be aware and be willing to live with, with the consequences. And the problem is, speaking from personal experience, when I was 21, I wasn't fully aware of the power of my words sometimes. Mm. I'm not saying you're wrong. I don't, right. I just, I don't really know the answer. Yeah, I mean, but I don't, I don't think your point is a bad one at all because if you think about the upside, like what's the upside to them tweeting about politics? And you're right, it's probably not a lot. Writing a column in your student newspaper, totally different. Yeah. Because you're showing you can write and you're taking a position and blah, blah, blah. But wasting, I just don't think it's what that's about. Those bullets are worth wasting. I don't know. Yeah, no, no, that that I understand why you would say that. That's, I don't. I don't think that's bad advice at all. Because especially if you know you, especially if you feel like you have 
some provocative opinions, it's probably not worth you doing that just because, as you said, you never know who's going to be your boss, what job market you might be in, um, you know, what city you might be in. And somebody very easily could resurface something that you've said. Yeah. And, you know, that's that. I mean, although it, it is it's hard because it's a fine line because people will resurface things that you said about people who maybe eventually become controversial yeah. that you didn't in- anticipate. Like they become, you know, something else in the media. Like, I don't know if you had a tweet 10 years ago that Adam, Le- Adam Levine is the greatest. Great dad, <laughs> great, great dad. husband, great. Awesome father, you're like, oh! <laughs> like if people try to kind of bring, they try to bring those things up on you too. So sometimes, you know, you, you do want to make sure you, you, you tell the line between <laughs> giving in to the mob and being smart. I hate Twitter, by the way, and I use it all the time, but I hate it. Do you like Twitter? Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with it. I think in our line of work, it's necessary and useful. And I don't mind honest engagement on Twitter. Like every now and again, something will happen on Twitter that I'm like, I'm actually glad I'm on this. And, you know, I don't think you should at at all feel like you're doing something, I wouldn't say wrong, but that you somehow shouldn't look in your mentions. I mean, the whole point of social media, the first word is social, is that you're supposed to interact with people on social media. That's the point. Right. So, and especially about your work because you do work that lends itself to conversations and people having opinions. Wait, we both have books coming out on the same day. Yep. Why is it wrong for us to Google about our books? Like, why is it wrong for no. me to Google my name with a book coming out it is not. and see what people are writing about the book? No, you, I hope you have yourself on a Google alert. I don't, I just Google myself. No, Google it's alert. More, no, it's more rewarding this way. <laughs> no, it is, I swear. It's more. Because Google alert, you get a, um, I get a dispatch uh, every time I'm mentioned or every time like it, and usually they send out one with a list of where you were mentioned uh, at like 8 a.m. every morning yeah. I get a Google alert that tells me every publication that's mentioned me and so I just find it more efficient that's all that's that's I was opposed yeah. to yeah. Google I'm like no no do Google alert put your name in there and put the book title in there I have to add the no my book title is not as uh, succinct or yours is is much more you know focused than mine. Mine is uphill. You I like uphill. Yeah. I like- did you have a, all right? We'll go way wide. Um, did you have a lot of debate over what to call your book? Yes, they didn't like my first title. What was it? It was called Broken Curses. Okay, interesting. Why didn't they like it? They thought it was too negative. Why'd you call it Broken Curses? Um, because uh, and this was. I think this might have been in, in my introduction. This is about to get super nerdy and I'm all here for this. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> my mother often, she feels, she believes in the idea of generational curses, meaning there are certain legacies, good or bad, in families that get passed down from one generation to the next, be it trauma, be it, you know, whatever sure. it may be, especially trauma. Uh, she definitely believes that you can pass trauma down. And so she used to always pray that our family break the generational curses and so it got me to thinking about broken curses and how my life in many ways represented the generational curse and our family being broken so that's why i wanted to call it broken curses all right and how big of an argument was it over the title um it was i went back and forth for a long time and i explained to them just as i explained to you and they were just like well it just you want people to know that they're getting a, a sense of hope from this and i was like yeah i do want people to feel a beat, I guess, to some degree. But I feel like, okay, even if I get thrown like some unimaginable obstacles, like I can still power through. It's gonna take X, Y, and Z, but I can still make it. That's fine. One of many messages you may get from this. The other, but I, I feel like, I felt like that they were not correct in, in their assessment that it was, it was too negative. But 
at the end of the day, you know, this is my first book. Uh, I'm not super, I don't, I'm not super knowledgeable about the book publishing industry. Like Holt has sold millions of books. Right. I was like, right now you've sold zero. Exactly. Right? I was like, moment, I'm going right? to, I'm going to lean onto their understanding of things. So uh, I changed it. I didn't, I didn't come up with uphill actually. Yeah. So one, my book editor, she came up with it. Here's my take. I think you're right, but commercially they're probably right because really it's just about the easy to remember name of a book. It is. And you know, you, it's about that. And then especially now you have to think about social president presence, like hashtag, hashtag uphill. Yeah. uphill. Like you got It's so fucking stupid. How did we get here? Seriously. How did I was just writing for the, you know, I was just, I was a sports illustrator writer. I was happy. I didn't have a, there was no Twitter. You were just a columnist in newspapers, all nice and easy, right? You were going to write and be happy. And now look, I mean, and, and especially the book, the book, of, uh, you know, the, the commercial things you have to do to sell a book. Oh. That's, that's like really interesting. Like I'm, I, you know, people probably will find this weird and think I'm, I'm trying to be tongue in cheek or, or, or snarky, but even though I was on TV every day for years, like I didn't love being the center of attention. Like, it's what I did and, and I, I enjoyed it. And I, I got to work on some great shows and with some great people, but that wasn't, I didn't get on TV to be, for everybody to, to say, hey, look at me. But when you're trying to sell a book, you really have to be, hey, oh, look yeah. at me on steroids. And I was like, oh, like I gotta really, I gotta sell this thing. And I don't, I'm not a natural salesman. In fact, even when I go into uh, to department stores, like when the salespeople come up to me, I'm always like, no, no, no I'll find my own stuff. Like don't, oh, yeah. I'm the same way actually. Yeah, right, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I don't, I, don't, I don't need to be fussed over or tended to, you know? Um, with some things anyway <laughs> but but you know when it comes to a book it's like all those instincts of like you know not wanting to be a self-promoter have to go out the window and i'm finding that to be that's gonna be something to deal with wait i'm i mean serious so like this is one error i'm a veteran right book wide book pr it sucks like you have to call in every favor you can't have any pride whatsoever I mean, I like literally will appear on anything, anyone. I mean, you're sitting here in the park with me doing my podcast, so clearly so are you. But like, it's like, it's bottom feeder turf, man. It's freaking hard. No, I mean, it, it, and granted, and you have to be able to kind of continually keep up this wave of publicity. Like, for my book tour starts, because uh, we both drop October 25th. My yeah. book, tour, book tour starts that, that week. And the number of shows that I'm going to be doing is, is going to be crazy. And just keeping that momentum going. And as you said, you know, having either you yourself or if you, you know, have a, a publicity, publicity and marketing team with your publisher, like making sure like, hey, did you get me on this podcast? Did you get me on this? Like it, it is, like you said, it is very, uh, you really have to be able to sell yourself. And, um, you know, I know in a couple of days uh, from when we're recording this, like I'm going to start heavy, heavy book promotion on social hard. Yeah. So it's. It's, it's wild, so. Can I just say, I want to interrupt and say, a woman with a guinea pig is walking by <laughs> us right now. That is something you don't see every day. That's true. What's your guinea pig's name? Uh, Olive. Oh, oh, it's Olive. Olive. Literally, first time in my podcast history, a guinea pig is walking by. Oh, oh hi, Olive. I used to have guinea pigs as pets. Really? Yeah, they, Th I was going to say something I won't say. That's okay. the first time I've ever petted a, a, a guinea pig. Yeah, they will attack and kill you. Let's hope that's not the case. <laughs> I know Olive looks far too. Olive sweet. is very sweet. Yes. Well, thank you for allowing us to pet your Take care. Look at that. <laughs> that was an amazing moment. That was. This, right. is, this is why you do a podcast in a park. I'm sitting here with Jamelio, and we just met Olive the guinea pig. And now we have another unique story to tell. Right? About us <laughs> we really do. We petted a guinea pig in the park. <laughs> Tupac Museum. 
TV yes, show yes. premiere, all of the guinea pig in a bar. The, uh, the Park Museum now might be number two. That or might three. Be number might one. be three. Or three, yeah. right? <laughs> um, all right, I have a thought. I wonder if you agree or disagree. You probably disagree. I consider your book in many ways, like people would be like, her book is a book about being an African-American reporter in America. And someone would say, no, it's so much more than that, blah, 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 right? Which is true. I actually do consider your book in many ways about being an African-American woman in media and all the shit, because I think like, you know, like you talked about like your first time getting makeup and just like them basically turning you into a pumpkin, like a neon pumpkin. And like, I have two African-American nephews and just the fight to find a stupid barber mm. where, and like on and on and on, right? Like, and I do think people are unaware of like, the little things. Oh, we don't want to have two African-Americans together because they must have a lot in common and we need to have so-and-so and we need the pretty blonde here. We definitely need the pretty blonde here. And I actually consider a lot of your book, honestly, like precisely about that subject. And I don't think it's wrong to say, damn it, Jamel, that your book in a lot of ways is about being a black woman, a successful black woman in modern media. Am I wrong or right? I think you're right. Um, that's definitely a component of my story. I, I, I didn't I, say a component. I said your okay. whole book. No, the, whole, the whole book, <laughs> all 241 pages right. is all about that. But no, I, I wanted I wanted that to come through, and which is why I was brutally honest about what the behind the scene process can look like in television. And, you know, I definitely, for me, it was very um, eye-opening and the ruthlessness of TV and just the specificity of it, of like being, you know, like not wanting a, you to look a certain way or wanting you to look a certain way or feeling like you, the pressure that women are under, especially black women, because we're not the default that television network executives go to when they're thinking about creating shows and putting black women in certain positions. It's gotten a lot better um, for sure, because I'm sure Robin Roberts probably has some stories that, you know, are probably yeah. ridiculous. But nevertheless, it is, you know, you. You, you, you know, you talk about little things that people take for granted or don't even think of. Just getting makeup artists who know how to deal with black skin. Like, that was a thing for sure. Do you have makeup artists who never dealt with black skin before? Yes. And, and, and this is the, the imbalance or unfairness of the, of, the, of the television business. This happens on movie sets, too. Yeah. All the time. And movie and TV sets is that... Not on my TV show. <laughs> that's right. Not on yours. <laughs> not on yours. Uh, because they're much more cognizant of it, of it now. But you definitely have productions, television shows. They will hire black makeup artists. Or, I'm sorry, they will hire makeup artists who have never done black skin. And they will hire hairstylists who have never done black hair. And you wind up having to... I've talked to so many women in this business, black women, who for years had to had to do their own hair and makeup because the companies that they worked at would not hire or just didn't even think about it. And then by the, and if you're the only one, they're not gonna make some special exception just for you. Right. And meanwhile, if you're a black makeup artist that gets hired, you have to be able to do everybody's hair. Right. You know, so that's That's really interesting. Yeah, right. you have to be able to do everybody's hair. And so yeah, like um, the the makeup artists it was pretty clear that she did not have, she had either none or very little experience with doing, um, you know, black women with doing their makeup. So, and then, you know, I mean, you have to dress a certain way and just look the part, you know, basically, you know, as somebody who was, uh, uh, who grew up, you know, with very strong tomboy tendencies, this was, this was quite the shock, you know, to actually uh, have to go out and accessorize and, knowing that certain colors pop on TV and certain ones don't. And 
the fact that I hired one of my friends to be a, a, a image consultant for me because she was um, a longtime, you know, TV journalist and she had a lot of tremendous experience and she was like, okay, let's do this, let's lighten your hair, let's do some other stuff. And it was it was quite an education. I, I feel like there are a lot of things that white people do in media, in this profession to fool their African-American colleagues. I'm gonna list some of them, <laughs> okay. okay? I swear to God, I really do. And okay. this is from paying attention, watching and being part of it. Okay. It reminds me of when Eddie Murphy goes undercover as white on the bus and he sees everything. Else. Okay, number one, they will try to drop a hip hop reference. Like, oh, I saw Kendrick last night. That was amazing. Not even knowing if their black colleague likes hip hop, but like that, number one. Number two, doing the cool man handshake, like inappropriately, <laughs> totally out of context. Like, I just feel like, oh yeah, I've spent a lot of time in, I spent a lot of time in Detroit. You know, like, I just feel like there are all these things that I've noticed through the years that just are like the most obvious things, but like nonstop. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? Am I like no, totally? you're completely truthful. The handshake one is my favorite, actually. Oh, because I mean, it's so awkward. It's like, that's not really okay. It's not for you. <laughs> Here's a secret, white folks who are listening. I'm all yours. Yeah. Black <laughs> right. like people know that you're doing this. We're embarrassed for you. And when we're with each other, we talk about this constantly. All right. And we make fun of you all the time. So you can keep doing it and providing us these secret laughs that we love to have with each other. But understand that we totally recognize this when it happens. Um, Or, you know, when you mentioned the whole I spent a lot of time in Detroit. One of my other favorites, too, is... we're in Orange, California, right? So if, if, if you grow up here, but they'll tell you, oh, I grew up in L.A. Right. Oh, yeah. You did not grow up in L.A. Like, that's not even close. Right. You know, because it's, uh, especially, I, I feel like everywhere people are like this, but especially people from Detroit, where I'm from, are super protective of people saying they're from Detroit and not being from the city. And from right? Dearborn. Exactly, right. right? And then especially if you name a all-white suburban sound, uh, like suburban enclave like we are going to just be offended right so I remember one time it was just it was a white guy I was talking to and I told him I'm from Detroit I was like yeah I'm from Detroit and he's like I'm from Detroit too and immediately this is I try to figure out if they're really from Detroit what side did you grow up on east side or west side he said well actually I'm from Muskegon Muskegon is three (laughs) hours from Detroit I was like all right man you just (laughs) I thought he was gonna say he was from eight mile because he did (laughs) from eight mile but see that wouldn't even tell you what's out of town right I mean eight mile is the the divide I've only been to Detroit twice so I actually don't know the answer (laughs) well the reason that Eminem called his movie eight mile was because eight mile is the dividing line between the city and the suburbs in Detroit and so it was um, like when white flight happened in Detroit, all the white people fled to go across Eight Mile, essentially, because that's where all the suburbs are. Yeah. And so, if you're, and, it, and this was the case when I was growing up, um, if you're on the suburban side of Eight Mile, and especially if you're black, oh, you're gonna get pulled over. Like, there's no question about it. If you're on the Detroit side, like people would, people would speed on the Detroit side, but wouldn't speed on the white side. How funny, right? Yeah. So because that's how much of a dividing racial line Eight Mile is, hence why he called it that. Um, but yeah, no, I mean white people, like, they they do that all the time. Like they'll, but they'll, it's usually some reference. Let's see, they're horribly out of date. Yeah. Or it's something where it's just too obvious that they're trying to connect with you as a black person to show you like 
hey, I'm into the same things you are, but it winds up being a little bit insulting because as you said, everybody isn't into hip hop. Um, and you're picking like very obvious sort of in your mind, what are the what are the blackity black things that I could pick that I say I like that you would be into? No, number one is calling the guy bro and then doing the bro and then doing the Mm-mm. handshake Mm-mm. and like Mm-mm. also like don't even think I'm actually being sincere and this crosses racial age blah 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 lines I just think in this business ultimately you're just best served being authentic and like if I'm interviewing someone from Detroit my best play is to say I'm not from Detroit but can you tell me about what it's like if I interview someone from Gary Indiana I'm not from Gary Indiana I walked around it's really interesting I'm not from there like you're just better off being fucking honest. Yes, exactly. Like I, we appreciate that more because then that gives us an opportunity to explain to you what Detroit is like from our perspective, and for you to have a little bit more context than just watching Eight Mile. Like I mean, of course, a number of white people have asked me if I know where Eight Mile is. I'm like, yes, I, I know. Right. I, I do know where Eight Mile is. Right. So, and it, but yeah, you're much better like leading with that. I mean, if somebody told me. Um, they were from, you know, I don't know, Madison, Wisconsin. I wouldn't pretend like I knew everything about Madison, Wisconsin. I would rely on them to tell me about it. So, yes, so many of these awkward exchanges and moments could be avoided if people were just honest about the fact that they don't know what they don't know. And that actually crosses, like, I already mean it. Like, you're Jamel and you're going to bumfuck Texas. Like, and it's an all-white country and western bar. Like, the best thing you can do is make a joke about being there, don't you think? A hundred percent. I'm like, yeah, I mean, there's so many jokes to be made there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I'd be better off just telling them that I don't know anything about, you know, country western singing or singers, or I can tell you who's current or relevant or who I should be listening to. So I'm not going to pretend that I, I can do these things. Yeah. So yes, that is, that's across the board relatability. But I, I wonder, because we're journalists and we're so used to being thrown uh, especially when we were, you know, reporters kind of in the field, we're accustomed to being thrown into situations where very quickly we have to be able to download everything that's happening and why, right? Like, I, yeah. like, like I covered two Olympics. That's, I mean, and everything you cover when you cover the Olympics is not sports you're super familiar with. So to have to cover beach volleyball at the 04 Olympics in Greece, I didn't know anything about beach volleyball, but I had to get up to speed on it very quickly. And the best way to do that is to ask the actual coaches and players about what's happening. Best way to do it. Well, you kind of blew my mind with the thought. I swear to God, like, um, I do think, I've never really thought about this. Like, I think my best ability is like reading a room and adapting to the room. That's 100% journalism, isn't oh, it? Yeah. I mean, that's the, we do that. I, I think we do it so organically and naturally and using our experience that we don't even recognize it as a skill. But it's a skill. I never thought of it as a skill until this very moment, I swear to God. It's a tremendous skill because most people can't do that. Or, you know, most people aren't curious enough to ask the right questions to further their knowledge base. They just just aren't. I mean, when I covered the Winter Olympics in Italy, I... Curling, American curling that year just decided to be good. I don't know. And they were just like. They knew you were coming. They were excited. <laughs> America's biggest curling fan will be here. We will perform for Jamel. Uh, so they, they sent me to curling and because it looked like they were going to medal for like the first time in like 90,000 years or something. And I'm like, I, I saw curling on TV as a kid because uh, growing up in Detroit, um, you know, Canada is right across the river. So we got a Canadian 
channel, their major one, Channel 9. And they would, like, you flick past it, they'd be showing these dudes with brooms and, like, right. this little, you know, circular object trying to get it up and down would look like a, a bowling lane, but it's ice, <laughs> you know? So I'd, I'd seen it before, sure, and I'm, you know, I knew a little bit about it. I didn't know how it was scored or how somebody could determine who's doing well, who's not. And I, I was very honest with the coach. I was like, listen, I'm supposed to write about you guys. I want to write the best story possible. The only way I can do that, you have to help me understand this game. And he was he was excited to do it. Yeah. He was very excited because he got to spend an hour talking about curling so I could write a better story. So There's literally no reason not to do that. Yeah. Like where you did. There's no reason. You're covering your first baseball game. You're interviewing the manager. He says something you don't understand. Right. You actually look smarter asking about it. And right. the manager finds you endearing for doing it. Exactly. And right. you made a source for life. So... Take that same scenario and make it a dinner party. Right. Journalists like, hey, that's why we're great at dinner parties. Most of us, not all of us, but most of us, or like in those social situations where there's new people in the room that you're trying to get to know, or just like as you're doing this social event, just have like an easy rapport with. It's because we ask questions, we can read a room, and those are completely, um, you know, a very special skill set, and we know how to tell a story. So there you have it. My uh, my wife does not like me at dinner parties because she says I interview everybody, and she says you. She'll say to me, "We have friends coming over." She'll be like, "Don't go into interview mode." Now, do you think your the friends? Do you think they enjoy it? I bet they enjoy being interviewed. Maybe, but I think I do it as a defense mechanism because I do not like talking sports that much, and that's all they want to ask you about. Yeah, and also like I don't love. I'd rather hear someone else's really good story than tell my own mostly yeah. I mean no I don't know sometimes. no I, I get it I mean because you know that that it happened more I think when I was on TV every day at ESPN where suddenly everybody I used to joke everybody wants to play around the horn with you in person right and I'm like I don't really want to do that necessarily right. but I realized for them you know it's a big it's a big moment right. you know for them to be able to talk to somebody they see on TV who you know is a part of some of their favorite sports programs it means a lot to them and my husband actually said something to me that I hadn't really thought of. He said, you know, people are probably really in awe of you and your friends who write and talk about sports because they, a lot of, they were like, most people in this country don't get to do the thing they love to do. Right. And you all do. And to them, to outsiders, even though you and I could both probably easily trade war stories over being on the road and eating crappy food and staying in shitty hotels and like all, you know, just the all the work that goes into you know creating great content that people don't see but the fact of the matter is is that we are in a very unique and rare population that gets to do that thing that they always love to do it's the best thing ever mm -hmm. it's still the best job i still feel like it's the best job i'm with you and look whether i got to a point where i could write a memoir or got on espn i'd still be doing this job right. like i was prepared to do this job knowing that I'd probably be broke, that I'd probably make no more than 50000 I thought that was like the maximum money I could probably. What was your first salary? You started uh, in Raleigh, right? Yep. First salary was 22000 Well, I was 26 in Nashville. And, <laughs> I was, and I was ahead of you. Yeah, 26. Wow, I remember when I got a job offer and got bumped up to like 24 25 and I was like, oh. Right. And I'm going to TJ Maxx <laughs> and I'm buying a pair of shoes. <laughs> That's right. I was like, I thought I was doing something big then. And then my second job in journalism in Detroit, uh, that was like a $20,000 pay raise. And I was like, oh my God, I've never seen this much money before. <laughs> so yeah, like you, you know, journalism is, despite the fact that there's been 
this entire false argument that journalism is uh, the coastal elites and all this other stuff. I was like, journalism at the local level is a working class profession. Yeah. It is not, everybody doesn't get to be Stephen A. Smith. That's yeah. like one person out of hundreds of journalists. So I think people have this very false impression that we got into this to make money when most of us, at least I can speak for my age, I do think with younger kids, they look at it a little differently. But most of the people I know when we got into this business, it was knowing that we would never make any money and we were proud to be broke because we felt like we were doing something important. 100%. Mm-hmm. A final question for you. The, the buzz, the excitement, the wardrobe, the cameras, the studio, the whole, like, whatever, we're on in five, four, three. Mm-hmm. Do you miss any of that? Do you miss TV in any way, shape, or form? Uh, no, I don't. And I know people are very surprised because uh, in, mostly in my social circles and friends, they've asked me that. They're like, oh, don't you miss? Don't miss it. And one, I think one reason why it was very easy for me to walk away from not just SportsCenter, but ESPN in general, is because TV wasn't, I loved doing TV when I did it and it was fun. And it, it frankly, uh, maybe top reason is that it changed the financial trajectory of my family, period, right? Yeah. So um, I, I miss certain parts about it. You know, I miss, of course, being able to talk about the news of the day, but I, I never, because I didn't love it like that, it was easy for me to walk away from. And, you know, Sports Center is a great job for a lot of people. Worst job for me, great job for a lot of other people. And so I never felt like TV, TV never came close to giving me that thing that writing gives me. Never came close. Um, for as long as at a high level as I did it. So, no, I don't I don't miss being on TV every day at all. In fact, I don't know how I did that for five straight years. Like, that was ridiculous. I was like, are you crazy? It is very difficult to do television every single day um, for that length of time. And the fact that people do it 20, 25, 30 years is mind-blowing to me uh, because every day television is a fire drill. The worst kind of fire drill because nobody's prepared. So it's like, it's brutal in that sense. And only at the end of it can you just be like, I cannot believe I made it through that. But, you know, I don't miss the creative fighting. I don't miss the fact that pretty much all these network executives are the same. I don't miss that part. Um, And, you know, I don't miss pretending to care about issues and topics I don't care about. Right. I don't care about Jacksonville, sorry. No, I don't. <laughs> no disrespect to Jacksonville. Right. But like, uh, I've been there, it's not. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean as a city. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't talk about the Jaguars, right. like for what, you know? So you are constantly confronted with all these issues like you don't really care about or issues that we try to make into issues just for the sake that you have, you know, 60 minutes to fill um, on air. So now what I love about, you know, the space I'm in now is that all the TV projects I want to do, I can pick. That it, and, and they're not things that will require me to do it every single day, but I can pick, you know, being the, um, uh, you know, the front facing talent for like a cool docu-series that I'm interested in. Right. And that to me is so much better than being caught up in the mundane right. back and forth. And it, especially like, honestly, I enjoy sports so much more now, not being on TV than I, and I had to watch five times as much sports as I do now. Now I just, I watch the sports I like, I watch the athletes I like, I watch the situations I like, and then that's it. And I'm so happy 
that when controversies happen or big things happen, I was like, God, I'm so happy I don't have to be on TV discussing this. Like, for every day. And you don't have to pretend you give a shit about whether Trevor Lawrence succeeds as quarterback. Like, I, you I just, don't, right. No, I don't, I don't care if there winds up being a Cowboys controversy, a quarterback controversy between Dak Prescott and Cooper right. Rush. I, I just don't care that much. Yeah. yeah it's interesting to watch from afar, yeah. but I'm just so glad I don't have to be on TV discussing that. And even some of the more meteor issues because I feel like because I'm still writing for the Atlantic I can write about those issues in a very much more nuanced way than being on TV like I'm so glad I don't have to be on TV discussing Emmanuel uh, Doka I'm so glad I don't have right. to do that right. I don't even want that headache right yeah. I can write about it it's 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 fascinating on a lot, lot of levels but that that would be a topic I'd hate to have to discuss for like nine straight days well so like I just want to say like you do a TV hit like you know like they'll be like uh so like i do this thing on five the other day. i wrote this thing on twitter about five okay and how no one should buy my book because fuck him right <laughs> and i get all these calls from tv stations you want to come on and i said no to all of them mainly because i know exactly what it's going to be which is you have two minutes to formulate something that calls for an hour discussion and like i just don't want to do it like i'm too old to like need to be on tv and so my parents see me you know what i mean i just don't need that shit anymore i mean and, and that's I completely under, understand that. And even with, even if it is a big topic and a couple people, I'll be very choosy about where I go. I won't, I don't feel the need to go through some media blitz to discuss, you know, Brett Favre. Your book, yes. Yes, oh, yeah, 100% call me. me. Yes, all producers, <laughs> please call me with this book. If you need to reach Jamal, reach out to me, I'll, I'll put you in touch with her. That's right, Jeff, Jeff will be my pseudo book agent here. So you could, you reach out to him and he'll get me, he'll yeah. get me to, or get you to me. I just want to wrap this by saying that um, every year on your, on your birthday, my wife, Catherine, gets a text saying that it's your birthday. She's never met you. She doesn't know why this happens, but I swear to God, every year pops up on her phone. So, uh, I'll call you on your birthday. Yeah, tell yeah. your wife thank you. Yeah, I Again, will. preemptively. I will. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Jamel. Obviously, thank you for what well, you're speaking to my class in a few minutes, and thank you for coming down. And uh, yeah, thanks so much today. All right, thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Jamel Hill, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Jamel on Twitter at Jamel Hill and buy Uphill wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Also, my next book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, drops October 25th, but it's available for pre-order now. Music is by the sweet MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.